morning from your friends at Sinclair Media Group. Here are your headlines across the nation. A desalinization plant in Baltimore was ransacked last night after management announced to the city council yesterday that it would be raising prices by 30%. Among the items taken from the plant include several dozen water testing kits, sanitizing lights, and weapons. A fire tornado touched down in Eugene, Oregon last night, but thankfully no one was killed. The tornado ran through several automated warehouses and a combination Red Lobster Olive Garden restaurant. Hope you still have photos from prom! Apple has announced the winner of their latest lottery. Anyone who has saved a photo on their phone from Tiffany Trump High School Senior Prom 2030 has won five free years of Apple Care for their devices and body. And finally, our top story. The 79-year-old CEO of Ali Uber and Senator from California Elizabeth Holmes has announced that their comprehensive subscription service has been successfully implemented in 45 new cities, creating $18 billion in value for shareholders and leading to only 24 arrests and no deaths. This latest rollout is the most peaceful product launch in the company's history since the so-called Civil War merger of 2025. Still, you can't satisfy everyone. Reactionary forces in Cleveland are ungrateful for the new service, which they say they don't need and never wanted. Ryan Seacrest IV reports. Thanks, friend. We're here outside of Mike and Dee's Diner on Euclid, where dozens of regulars can enter the restaurant, but their money, literally, is no longer good there. Only 10% of the city's population is among the 30 million happy and satisfied Ali Uber comprehensive subscribers. That means the vast majority of residents can no longer visit most restaurants in the city, which have taken advantage of Ali Uber's subscription plan. In the Cleveland, Ohio metro area, subscribers can eat out four times a week at any of the restaurants as part of their plan, but of course, they're the only ones that can eat out. As everyone knows, but Cleveland residents are just finding out, restaurants participating in the program can no longer accept cash. In cities where the services have been rolled out, it has been estimated that customers pay up to 40% less for their meals. We spoke to one person who was standing outside the diner and isn't happy about how much he could save through an Ali Uber comprehensive subscription. Ryan, I went right into my favorite diner and they said they don't take cash. You need Ali Uber credits to buy anything. I, I said I don't have a subscription because I can't afford the monthly fee, but they keep saying I would save money by subscribing. It doesn't make sense. I, I just want an omelet. No one inside the diner enjoying the fresh new menu with a local flair said they had a problem, and we're very grateful that Cleveland could be part of the future. Ali Uber is partnering with social services in the region, to help those, like the person we just heard from, afford an Ali Uber basic subscription. The company says that anyone interested in that program should provide a hair sample and the certified results of the latest emotional competency test to their assigned local health services and self-care Sherpa. This is Ryan Seacrest IV, signing off. Thanks, Ryan. Well, that's all the news we expect you can pay attention to. I'm your friend, and this has been the headlines from the Sinclair Media Group, an Ali Uber company.
Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode six of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan with Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. Uh, and today we're joined by editor at large for Real Life Magazine and co-host of the great Iron Weeds podcast, David Banks. Um, David, how are you going? I'm doing great. Thank, uh, I'm so excited to uh, to be on my my new favorite podcast. Uh, Don't tell Iron Weed. Oh, but cool. yeah, no, it's just, uh, uh, you guys have been uh, really killing it, like right out of the gate. I'm I'm really excited to uh, to be on here. Oh, well, thank you for the for listening and the kind words. We're happy to have you on, um, especially because uh, I mean, you 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 recently wrote and published um, this this amazing essay in um, eFlux, this this really cool kind of online journal um, outlet with really great essays. Uh, and you published this essay on what, I, I don't think you call it this in the essay, but I've in my mind, I was thinking about it as like the subscription economy. Mm-hmm. So really this kind of like rise of, of, of you know, all these X as a service, Uber for X, you know, all these kind of platforms and companies that are really premised on just making everything into a subscription. Um, and, and I, I think you, you like do this really great job of painting, um, a really vivid and horrifying picture of, of what a life well subscribed looks like, as you call it. Yeah. Um, yeah. so I mean, could you just kind of walk us through, maybe start with this really interesting kind of like short speculative short story that you start the essay with of like that future life. Yeah. So the, the, the article starts, I've never done this before and, and I'm happy uh, to hear that it seems like it worked, but the, uh, it, it opens up with like yeah, this, definitely. it opens up with like, like a couple paragraphs of the day in the life of, uh, of an architect that lives in, uh, you know, the, the not too distant future who makes like a ton of money, but actually doesn't have any spending cash or has very little spending cash because most of her paycheck, uh, as like a professional, she's an architect, right? Just moves, uh, directly to a subscription service that covers pretty much every aspect of her life. I think I say in there that, you know, um, both it's both her landlord and her employer's landlord. Uh, it's where she gets most of her food. It's uh, uh, where how she gets around. All of these things are broken out into different sorts of credits and subscription packages um, that d- basically dictate her life. But it's, it's not um, like... Uh, sort of an Orwellian dic- dictating of life. You know, it's it's actually it's more carrot than stick. You know, is so many parts of her life are uh, are like very well uh, tuned and are pretty and nice. And it um, mm. uh, and what what you get out of it though is like y- you notice that if she were to lose her job, right, or somehow go uh, astray of the of the end user license agreement of of this dictatorial regime, you know, you you, uh, you would fall out of society. Like there would be nothing left because everything that you need to for your day-to-day life comes from this one subscription service. Yeah, like I that was really intriguing the way you were like uh, so you say she makes $200,000 a month but she hasn't had this much to play with which is you know she has $500 in spending cash that month um which is a lot for 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 her uh you know it, it says $160,000 a year is gone before it even hits her pay account um some of it in taxes but two-thirds of her annual income goes directly to Ali Uber. 
Uber, the mega company that resulted from a series of mergers and acquisitions in the late 20s. <laughs> yeah, so we're almost there. We're almost so there. I, I mean, I, we're almost there. And I, I, I found it really interesting the way that you like pulled in this inflation oh, aspect yeah. too. It's like she's making $200,000 a month, which, you know, that that's some real Weimar Republic <laughs> shit. Where it's just like, you know, thank, thank God it's all digital and she doesn't have to go down and get her wheelbarrow yeah, it was like of cash. Wheelbarrow of Benjamins. <laughs> yeah. Or, or just like make one yeah. like $10,000 Trump buck, you know, <laughs> yeah. to carry around. Or what was it? The Iraqi dinars? Maybe she yeah, right. in some of those. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, man. yeah. That's the, the that the, that's what that's TMK is totally propped up. Yeah, on oh, we're, we're, we're yeah. swimming right now. In them right now. I'm sure I might short some, but you know, pa- Patreon money goes directly <laughs> just, into just, dinars and Dogecoin. That's it. Yep. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Cut to me in a big like Scrooge McDuck vault, just diving into an ocean of Iraqi dinars. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So it, so while the, there is a lot of inflation. Um, there's, uh, she also doesn't know, you know, so while there is hyperinflation, um, she, uh, the, this, uh, um, architect also like, doesn't even really know what denominations are because she so rarely has to use cash for services. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and that was a part of what, uh, we put into the, into the skit that y'all just heard is that, you know, so many things that you would just like walk in and get a service or buy or purchase something right like there's no uh like walls or gates that say no you can't come in here but instead like literally your money's not good here right you show up and like they don't take cash which is already happening in a lot of cafes where like they don't take cash that you can only use like a credit card through square which and then you'll find out like a day later they're like sending you coupon codes and shit like it's like it's just like the most annoying thing solves no problems and is just like a way to sell your data. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and thank you for David wrote the script for the cold open this week, and it's a it's like this direct continuation of the story he starts with. So if you like that, then you definitely gotta go read his essay. But yeah, I, you packed in so much. I mean, even that move to a cashless society, which COVID is like accelerating. Uh, you know, I, I I don't know. I can't imagine that we'll be handling money um, in the future in any kind of like you know physical way uh and and you know i mean we already had like a i don't i have no idea how no one's explained it to me but we had like a coin shortage apparently (laughs) and (laughs) (laughs) yeah what what is that how does every single clerk i've ever come into contact with when i'm going to the grocery doing to do groceries how the hell do we have a coin shortage and no one knows and i i can't find i haven't found anything satisfactory online like i I, it's gotta be some kind of weird artificial scarcity though right it's like how de beers Uh when um like when diamond prices are getting too low they'll like hold all their you know because they control like 90 percent of the world diamond market Uh or something Uh you know they'll they'll um you know hold all their diamonds and and then jack the prices up because i mean the whole reason the u.s still has pennies is because the copper lobby Right. And so like, the, uh-huh. you know, the for like metals for like copper and nickel and stuff, 
Um, they, uh, you, you know, the, the the coin industry is really big for them. So I I wonder if you dig into it, if you discover all this weird, like you know, uh, metal industry lobbying and 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 mm. you know, machinations. But yeah, yeah. Our producer Jeremy is saying that Treasury's underemployed. Surprise, surprise. I think that's that'd probably be like a good explanation too. I mean every understaffing every single thing is a good way to make sure nothing happens right yeah i i was thinking that they were taking all of the quarters and putting them in like the the paid uh washing machines <laughs> at trump properties it's just but, like but a with a string it's with <laughs> the a way string. they're laundering <laughs> money so they, yeah. Yeah. So no one can ever get yeah them. yeah <laughs> People are out there, like, you know, skimming wishing wells and, you know, stocking up on all the coins in them. (laughs) I thought about it. It's just like Eric Trump, like, Uh so desperately trying to get dad's attention. Like, I got some coins, dad. We can put them in the vault. But um, yeah, so I mean, back back to back to your article and the story. Uh, the, also, this idea of Ali Uber as this mega company that like owns um, uh, doesn't just own things, but more more importantly, owns access to things. Like that becomes the assets become superseded by access as like the real premium in this kind of political economy, this rise of rentiership. Um, could you talk to us a little bit about this idea of Ali Uber, which I think, you know, for those of us who are maybe familiar with um, like the Chinese uh tech sector and the kind of like digital ecosystem there um, is some a, a mega corporation like Ali Uber would, would look really familiar. But I think for a lot of people um, in, in the Western world are, are really removed from and totally unfamiliar with how these kinds of like mega apps and stuff work over there. So could you explain a little bit about like what what is an Ali Uber? Yeah, yeah. So for, first, I'll say, you know, like th- this uh, article was commissioned for a, um, mm. a a conference in Shenzhen, which is why I, I, I wrote that, and I, and I traveled to Shenzhen, which was my first experience with WeChat, like the one of the Chinese uh, like mega apps that you can do everything from like pay your utility bill to ride the subway and like uh, you know get dick pics, like are all on the same app, right? And uh, uh, and what you um, uh, and what you find is that like it's like so ingrained in the culture all the time that you um, that there, it's actually very hard to do some things without a fully functioning WeChat app because you know as a American you don't have all of the access to things like you know you don't have a bank account in in the Bank of China and all these and all these other things that um, make it really hard to fully flesh out your account. So I you know me being a dork I'm like try, I'm like trying to pay for things with the WeChat app just mostly for novelty and because I think it's interesting and uh, and like sometimes it works but then mysteriously other times it wouldn't and like if you didn't have cash then you're just like you you don't get to like buy this coffee or whatever like it was just I would just have like all of these times where it would be inexplicable like why I can't pay through the app and 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 I and I wrote the essay later after coming back and thinking about my experience in like not being able to just like purchase mm. things even though I had money in my account and um and and Ali Uber 
sort of scenario would be one where you know uh, Uber famously like you know tried to go into China and didn't and it didn't work and they like divested themselves of their China properties and like I think he hit some sort of new record <laughs> yeah, in yeah. failing. Yeah, they they spent business, right. They, they spent like, billions like, and billions of dollars, million in revenue. The only the, on, the yeah. only thing I heard there yeah. is that, um, the only thing I heard you say is Uber is breaking records, just just new records left and right. You know that's yeah yeah <laughs> deals deals, and so so um, so an Ali Uber would be something this like a globe spanning a planetary organization that you know could we could have real veto power over democratic governments if it controls the. Um, uh, the currency, right? Uh-huh. Uh, it's like you see that with the EU is that like that is an organization that is deeply undemocratic uh, and can supersede a lot of democratic governments through the control of currency. So uh, a subscription package uh, can do something very, very similar. I think both, uh, both, uh, both of you, uh, Jathan and, and, and Ed, like I think have said uh, similar things about like how, um, uh, subscription services sort of um, reduce your ability to control things um, because uh, it, it just sort of puts a smoke screen behind like your actual access and relationship to goods and services. And uh, I think like with uh, something like an Ali Uber, right, you you can just um, uh, control vast amounts of of the world without owning anything, right? Mm-hmm. Because um, Every you know, like anything that's powered by SoftBank, whether you know it's uh, you know WeWork or I, I don't remember if if Uber has any uh, SoftBank money, but in any case, right, all of their the whole point of those companies is to not own anything, right, and they they just sublease mm-hmm. everything, right, you know, and I think that was also really interesting in your essay, also how so these companies are offering how when you break down what's going on behind the uh, you break down what's going uh, on behind you know the actual veil right there's this talk of authenticity before you go into the monopoly rents right the idea that you know now the global economy is being subsumed by uh, platforms by companies that are interested in uh, curating a brand and adherence to that brand and the proximity to whatever the idealized version of that brand is for a neighborhood, for a service, for an experience results in direct monopoly rents where you have no competitors and then indirect monopoly rents where you can claim proximity and gatekeeping to that experience. You know, I think about how with Airbnb, it was a pretty notable, it's a pretty important, but like not really talked about much transition when they began to offer experiences, right? Because, you know, Airbnb, mm-hmm. off, you know, markets itself as like a, as a landlord that can give you access to properties at a lower rate, right? But there are hidden charges that end up making it as expensive or not, or more expensive. But then it offers experiences, right? And these experiences are just like things you would be able to do yourself if you really did them yourself. But they are charged, you're, you're getting charged a lot more, you know, to go on a wine tour through lower Manhattan, to go on a bike ride, um, you know, through the Bay Area, uh, to go on a guided tour through like some garden in um, a Redwood Forest or on a hike in, in the Grand Canyon. You know, like these things are, they found ways to charge 
uh, without owning the experience. They don't own these parks. They don't own any of these things that you're going on, but they are able to uh, get you to pay into having them kind of last minute or haphazardly organizing an experience for you. And I thought that was like really also captured or, or hinted at in that direction with that story. And then the essay itself where it's like, look, you know, like um, this, this woman, this architect, she's going across the world. Everything is more or less the same, but there are key signifiers to let her know that it's different. And that's why she has to be an alley Uber. Like, isn't it nice she's in Dubai, which is the exact same as New York City, except for, like, the Bedouin cloth that was uh, on display in her room? Isn't it nice that she's in Seoul, even though it's the exact same as Dubai and New York, even though it has, like, some, you know, arbitrary signifier in her room? Yeah, it's... And I'm worried also... It's this generic. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. it's this kind of genericness right. to it. Um, but I think, that Ed, uh, you really got there with something, too, where it's like... Um, you know, it, it, it almost Airbnb, um, in particular with the experiences kind of models really hopping on and trying to appropriate this like anti-consumerist, like the, the kind of bohemian vibe where like, you know, and I, I've been totally, uh, guilty of, of, of saying it myself, but being like, oh, you know, I, I, I like to spend my, my money and time on experiences, not like consuming things. You know, I, you know, I, I, I travel so that I can have experiences, not, you know, <laughs> so, but, but that is this total kind of like, um, it has this basis in this kind of like anti-consumption, anti-commodity, you know, it's like, I want experiences, not just goods or things to consume. Um, but of course, like Airbnb has been able to commodify those things and set up um, itself as a gatekeeper that controls access to those things, which are things that it like legally does not and cannot own. It's not property, you know, in any kind of like in, in any kind of legal way. Um, but for all intents and purposes, it becomes property in an economic way. So it's like property over an ephemeral thing, over a, a non-material thing. Yeah, the, the, the way I like to think about, uh, Ed brought up uh, direct and indirect monopoly rents, and that's um, straight out of uh, mm -hmm. uh, fellow David, David Harvey's uh, work, uh, The Art of Rent. Um, it's an excellent essay that um, draws out all the different ways that you can uh, draw like money off of things, whether you own them or not. Right. AKA rent. And, um, the, the indirect mop monopoly rent, uh, is extremely fascinating to me is in fact, like a, a pretty big part of, um, of a book that I'm working on about, um, how cities act like reality TV stars by selling their authenticity to, uh, to employers and prospective new residents. But, um, the idea about, about indirect monopoly rent is essentially this, right? Like, so you don't own the Eiffel Tower, right? The, you, uh, obviously, but you could own a little cart that sells Eiffel Tower uh, trinkets, right? And as you move further away from the Eiffel Tower, those trinkets will um, have, uh, um, will, will go down in value, right? And why is that? And the, the reason is because there is some sort like the Eiffel Tower essentially like radiates this uh, um, uh, indirect monopoly rent where, you know, the monopoly is being around the Eiffel Tower, right? There's only a f physically so many uh, square meters around the Eiffel Tower. And if you can get into those 
square meters, like the things that you're selling are going to go for a, a better price because there are people around there that are, uh, you know, obviously thinking about the Eiffel Tower, right? And um, uh, and what uh, algorithms do, and what like hashtags and geofenced uh, uh, lenses and all these other things do, is um, take ge- take that sort of ge- geographic feature and turn it into different sorts of genres, right? So you can uh, on TikTok, right, like g- get deep into I don't know, like owl TikTok or uh, you know a- a communist TikTok, right? You just like find all these different uh, lanes to to get in, and and if you uh, perfectly embody that. Um, hashtag, you get you get paid in attention, at least on TikTok. But in other places, you get really paid in cash, right? And so, if you can uh, sell um, a night in a room next to a vineyard, you know, right, in like an inn, right, that has that feels like a very authentic experience, as we usually as we usually talk about authenticity, and um, and and so you could charge a premium for it because of its proximity to the to the to the vineyard but the, but the problem for the capitalist right is that it's very hard to predictably expand that commodity right it's the the uh, uh the the supply is really hard to make especially on demand so a lot of um these like x as a service right you know, whatever as a service companies their job is to square that circle right is to figure out new ways of making uh, these authentic experiences um, predictably manufactured without losing what um, uh, 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 Benjamin would call like the, like its aura, right? The, like the the specialness to it that it gets lost. Yeah, you when had you a line in your in, in your essay, and in, in particularly the speculative short story near the end that I think really summed all this up in a way that really kind of spoke to me. Where you know, our the 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 kind of the architect at the center of the story has just moved. Um, to a new, you know, to a new apartment, fully furnished with everything provided, you know, and um, I think it was Dubai. And, and, and you had a line where it says, she feels a pang of homesickness, but is quickly overpowered by a familiar love of the new, uh, which really kind of like, I think, showed this internal paradigm shift um, where you've got this idea of homesickness and that, you know, this uh, space that is your own, it's your home, you have a connection to it versus this idea of um, a a kind of nomadic lifestyle um, where you're just moving from service to service, place to place. You don't own anything, but everything is perfectly curated for you. Um, Everything is perfectly provided and cared for you. Um, and, And, you know, that becomes like this kind of, uh, new familiarity, right? Um, the the newness um, is what becomes familiar, and and that it's just such a, a really. Um, I, I think it's hard to overstate how radically different of a of a of a kind of like experience um, and way of living in the world that is, and 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 that these services are really trying to push people towards, and we see it every time we see a news story that's saying like you know. 
millennials uh, uh, don't don't care about property. They don't want to own things. Millennials actually don't want to be homeowners. Uh, millennials are killing all of these things. X Y Z propaganda. Yeah, yeah. I mean, all, all of that is like all of that is just fucking propaganda for this subscription economy, right? It's like if you tell someone enough times that they don't care about uh, property um, or ownership, then then it has to be true, right? Yeah, you know, I also think about when I visited, I went to Kenya to see my family for the first time in 20, um, 2018, 2019. And it was interesting because, you know, uh, on two, you know, the two sides of my family, my mom's and my dad's, uh, live in radically different parts of the country and then some overlapping parts. You know, in Kenya, they have a really huge slum. I think it's the largest one in the continent. They have a more or less intensely segregated urban center in Nairobi and then also in Mombasa and some, you know, larger cities as well. But a lot of it is like, you know, very rural uh, areas, villages, mixes of, you know, farmland and like some communities. Um, and, you know, of course, cities and urban spaces. But the going there, right, and like the tourist experiences are catered to like replicating what you would see in Europe or in the United States, right, behind in, within communities that are like gated, locked off and warded off from the rest of uh, the city or the country, right? And when you step outside, when you step outside any of these like cultivated uh, and curated experiences and spaces, you get the real space and the and the actual country in of itself. But like, it is interesting how much energy and effort is spent in avoiding that and cultivating an authenticity, which also ends up just replicating the, the desirable elements of. The Western experience, or like the the East Northeastern experience, or the uh, the West Coast experience, but with a few signifiers that you're somewhere else, and it's like cool that you're in another continent. Because you know, when I was visiting my family, you know, in Kibera, which is like a huge, uh, you know, again, like well, a huge slum. It's like not. I don't. I don't know if there's any like equivalent. Um, here to talk about it but um it's it's not at it's nowhere it's not near physically um the cultivated experiences you have to go out of your way to do it and also those services don't even work there right or they work in very different ways you know uber in the in kenya is cash only right um in airbnb there are no offerings in those areas and the services not or they collapse or they degrade, but they shift in character, right? Once you step outside of that cultivated um, experience, I think to a truer form of what they actually are, which is like uh, extraction as a service, right? You get you just use our car, and then you have to negotiate with the driver what you're going to pay. You know, you have to barter with them for like for ten, twenty minutes sometimes if it's a really long trip. Uh, how much you're actually going to pay for the trip? Um, you get out of our. A closed garden and you have to figure out you know how to negotiate a fair rate for rent and you have to figure out how to avoid getting stiffed because you have like an american accent or you, you know all, like all these things that the experience when it's cultivated avoids for you um i and i don't know i think i think that it's interesting that like the 
that like with the future of these subscription models as they grow and proliferate they flatten like just the fact of the fact that like people live in different ways in different places all over the world so that it can be like you get to live as close as possible to a very specific form of life that will ensure you consume at x amount and spend at y amount and uh return a z percent on our investment to us yeah and you 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 mentioned the word walled garden and and i think that also um we can see kind of a uh, two ends of a spectrum and, and a logic at play here where like, you know, and, and, you know, we're used to thinking about Apple as the kind of like, you know, that that's the walled garden or the walled fortress, right? The, the, the Apple app store, they, um, you know, maintain a lot of control over what apps can be in there and, and so on. And so in this way, they are playing this really crucial mediating function um, by kind of erecting this walled garden. But then, you know, all of the things that populate that walled garden are um, not owned by Apple, right? They're all like, you know, the, you know, it's like, let a thousand flowers bloom within our garden that we decide what flowers are allowed and whatnot, but we don't own the flowers. It's all private companies and so on. But, and then we take right. 30% exactly. of no flowers, petals <laughs> every, every time. Exactly. Grows. We, you know, yeah. we own, well, of course, because Apple owns the land on which those flowers are planted and bloom. And so, you know, you got, you got to take your little cut off the top, you know, you got to have a, you got to have your rent. <laughs> <laughs> but the uh, so that's that's that kind of like uh, you know like feudal model you know some people talk about it as although I have my problems with with kind of uh, talking about this as feudalism versus talking about with as what it actually is which is this like expansion of rentier capitalism it's not something outside of or pre-capital this is very much part of capitalism but um, the the mega corporations that uh, David uh, brings up in his essay and are and exist over in, in China, like WeChat and this kind of like Ali Uber, you know, a mega company like that. That's not like a walled garden. That's more like um, I don't know, like like a biodome or something, right? Because uh. it's like. All of these services, you know, they're not erecting the environment or creating the conditions for the ecosystem um, to to flourish like Apple is. They are controlling every aspect of that ecosystem. So it, it's much more kind of cybernetic um, in, in that kind of biodome or biosphere way where you never actually get outside of that dome. Um, every service that you that you could possibly want actually exists as part of WeChat. You never leave the app. Yeah, and, and it is clear that uh, a lot of American firms, particularly Facebook and Google, like aspire to that. Right. And they, they, they would ser definitely not mind if you never left uh, I, either of their apps. I actually do remember, um, gosh, this was probably like around like 2014 or 13, I want to say. Like Facebook tried to make something very much like that. It was like an app. It was um, like a, a, a build of Android, I think, where it was like a, like a Facebook phone. Mm. The Facebook yeah, Free Basics, which yeah. they tried, and, they and tried they, to you know, roll they try out in India. Right, right, and and it, and it only like kind of wor You know, like it's if you already have the internet, it's like hard to uh, like see the value proposition there. But yeah, in, in emerging markets, like you know the so-called like final billion or whatever that they usually talk about to like get new people on the on the internet, so you can you know 
take money from them. Uh, it, it is interesting, and you know, in places uh, like uh, like in Ghana, where where I did some field work, uh, you see um, the inter- internet packages um, for like phones um, advertised like cable packages where like you'll get uh, internet and it gives you Facebook and Instagram and right and it's listing these things that you probably would have heard of before you heard of the internet and so you, you can you it's not just like the technical ability to like keep everything within your walled garden it's also convincing people that like to mistake your uh, walled garden for the whole internet, right? It's basically trying to recreate the AOL experience of, you know, like keeping you within uh, one uh, um, walled garden and, and mistaking that for the, for the whole internet, which I, I think is like, you know, Jathan, you, like when you're, um, your Antipode article, which it um, uh, covers, you know, my, my, my article that we're talking about and, and, and yours and Antipode covers a uh, very similar ground um, where you say that most, um, the platform model like is it built in that it wants to be a monopoly and i think that's that's absolutely correct uh, and and another word i think for monopoly is like the environment like like all platforms endeavor to be to like not just be like a big player in an industry they want to be like the the environment in which that industry operates right so like uber doesn't want to be a big competitor with Lyft, right? Uber wants to, and they've they've started moving in this direction, like just be the thing that you go to to find any sort of transportation, right? So you open up Uber and and maybe you get a car, but maybe you also like try to find out when the next uh, bus stop, you know, when the next bus uh, comes to your your stop or something like that. Because ultimately, what they're not selling is rides, right? They're selling information about where people go. Um, and so mm-hmm. ultimately, so much of, of these um, companies, yeah, don't want to be the best at something. They want to uh, consume the entire industry and then, you know, uh, uh, organize that behavior. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And and there's there's um so yeah, so I have this essay in Antipode called The Internet of Landlords, which um, poses a very similar argument as David's, but we wrote these essays independently, which I just think shows uh-huh. that the, it's the correct analysis. You <laughs> and, have, and, you and about the same time, too. Yeah. Yeah, and like the same time, like independently, we both pre- pre- presented, we looked at the world, the concrete things and material things happening in the world, posed a concrete material analysis of them, which are extremely similar um, in their in their analysis uh-huh. and conclusion, showing that they are correct, because <laughs> two people converged on it. Um, but I, I, I think we also, so I, a really interesting kind of connection point between these analyses is the way that... Um, uh, we we are we both are trying to think about this in terms of like what already exists um, to kind of and uh, you know provide an analogy for what's you know how the how capital is operating and we both mention it as a as a kind of like a mall right which is very uh, you know it's it's interesting because malls are are dying you know they're they're these empty shells and they and they have been for a very long time um, you know they were hit really hard by the by the uh, the financial crisis, you know, in 2008 and now with COVID, right? So like the malls as we know them are dying, but in their place is arising these kinds of platforms that act very similar to malls. Um, you, have, you have a great passage 
in your essay, which I'm going to uh, read right now, you say, quote, in addition to the obvious strictures on individuals' privacy and right to access all parts of their city, this new wave of corporatizing urban culture will finish the job urban renewal started half a century ago. It will turn cities into malls, organized by invisible barriers made up of digital sensors attached to account databases. And if the subscription model does to architecture what Spotify has already done to music, then buildings themselves will become less valuable as the intermediary companies that manage access sop up capital by the billions. So in this way, you have these kind of platforms um, operating like malls. And, 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 and in my essay, and we'll throw links to all this in the in the show uh, show notes. Um, I, I also say, you know, don't think of the platform as the landlord who owns a rental home. Think of it as the owner of a shopping mall who invests in property mm -hmm. in order to facilitate productive activity uh, for every good and service exchanged in the shops, for every social interaction between people meeting at the mall. Um, the the mall's owners takes their cut of the value generated, whether that value is money added to the price of everything or data about human behaviors and preferences. After all, to use the Silicon Valley jargon, what is a mall if not a capitalist ecosystem? And, and so there we see, you know, that the platforms are the new mall, right? Like, like you know, think about WeChat again, this kind of all-in-one app. Um, you don't need to go to a physical place to to browse all of the different shops and services on you know on display. Um, you only need to open up one app to to you know to book your travel, to order your dinner, to find a new outfit to wear, um, to do anything that you could possibly want. And then that that's exactly, you know, so it's so it's this mall in your pocket. Yeah. Yeah. And and I, I think it's worth asking, right? Um uh like why did all, did this take the form that it did, right? Like why do we go mm. from renting and leasing and and buying with uh, cheap credit to subscribing to something where you know it, it, you have you know if if you miss a payment like the whole spigot turns off, right? Um, it, whereas with like renting, the difference is you know, like maybe you have more rights as um, as having signed a lease that has a, a certain time period, right? Like why? What, 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 why are those the things that change? And for that, I, um, I wrote an essay a while back in Commune looking at, at uh, the Wii company and, and just like uh, co-living in general. And there I was asking, I was, I was looking at um, what changes when people can move a lot easier, right? Like when, uh, because moving is a pain in the ass. Uh, even if you rent, right, you, you you have to like wait for your lease to be over. Maybe you'll get the deposit back. Probably won't. Uh, it, and then you have to like put in all this new money up front for the new place. Right. It's, it's a huge pain. In the ass. And then like all your stuff. Right. You have to move all your stuff. Right. So and what a, lo what a lot of co-working does. Right. Is it gives you access to a network of places to live. And, um, and a lot of them are pre-furnished. And, and there's a kitchen where, you know, so you're not even, you don't even have to pack up like any sort of food or pots and pans because there's a shared kitchen that's fully stocked, right? So why, wh what benefit does that serve capital? Not just you, because obviously, you know, like there's parts of it that are convenient and pretty and nice, but like, why does that serve capital? And the reason is, um, 
what, uh, that I argue is that it, it it like is the last puzzle piece of like the double freedom that Marx described uh, for individuals under capitalism. Right? You need this double freedom of uh, uh, you don't you can't be uh, beholden to people. Right. They're like, oh, you know, my last name is Smith, so I have to be a blacksmith. And uh, because my dad was a blacksmith and his mom was a blacksmith before him and so on and so on and so on. Right. Um, and, and that doesn't work for capital because because the labor market needs to be really dynamic. And, you know, who becomes a blacksmith once like, uh, you know, needs to, you know, we'll channel the trillbillies for a second. Right. You know, like they get training to become, you know, a coder you know, instead of a, a, a coal miner. Right. You know, like that, that whole spiel. <laughs> right. Um, you, you need that to happen in order to have a really dynamic uh, labor market. Um, so there, that's the first freedom. The second freedom is a freedom to move, right? You can't stay in one place because, w- well, what if uh, one of these capitalists has a bad uh, production scheme and their factory closes because someone came up with a more efficient manner and they live in a different city, right? So you want all of labor to be able to very quickly and e- easily move somewhere else. And uh, at the height of labor power in, in America in the middle of the 20th century, um, the way to uh, uh, m- put a... Um, conservatizing force on a, on a fairly robust and muscular labor market, right? Uh, uh, like organized labor, right? A way to uh, enroll them into the, the, the um, desires of capital is to, is for mass home ownership, right? You, know, you, you get everyone involved in the market uh, and you put all their money there so that they beca- they act a lot more conservative, uh, and that worked very well. But now that labor, organized labor has been largely defeated, uh, although it's, of course, rising again, but now at this sort of like nadir of labor, organized labor power, um, you can instead free those people up instead of like waiting to sell your old place and get a new place. Right. You can instead let people move a lot faster uh, through these subscription models. And that makes the labor market a lot more dynamic. And it makes it so that uh, a company can like, you know, go up once, get a valuation of a billion dollars because they, you know, it's, it's pet food, but as a service or whatever. Right. And and then like, obviously that falls apart because pet food's expensive and we did pets.com in the two thousands. Doesn't anyone remember that? Of course we don't. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so like that, that, that whole thing falls apart predictably. And then you have to like move across the country for a, a, a new startup or scam or you know the same thing, uh, and and, uh, um, and 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 you want you want that labor to move as quickly as possible. Yeah, yeah. I mean that that's this is like a, a core kind of um, part of how capitalism works is that circulation makes the world go round. Everything needs to be in constant movement and constant circulation. And 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 you're right. Before that was really about kind of like capital circulating, money circulating. You know that that it, it was initially this kind of circulation of people from. Um, you know, from the, the, the fringes into the core, right? So this kind of like, um, you know, this creation of the proletariat, creation of wage workers by dispossessing people of their kind of, you know, their peasant lifestyle on the farms and moving them into the city so they can do industrial jobs. And now we see, um, the, you know, the, the flipping of that again. The next stage is to once again have everyone 
diffused, everyone constantly moving. Um, but it's not because they, you know, the, you know, it's not this kind of repeasantization where you now own um, your farm and you're you're back to doing subsistence subsistence work or whatever. Um, it's instead circulating. You know, people become the the, the kind of prime capital, right? Labor becomes this, this prime thing that now needs to be circulating all over the place, which uh, again, we see, you know, talk about the, the many contradictions of capital multiplying. Um, we, that, that's also a problem now because people literally cannot move, cannot circulate right. because of exogenous circumstances, i.e. there's a fucking pandemic going on. Yeah. You know, I think that's also, like you're talking about labor markets have to be disciplined in a certain way so that they adhere to the logic of this moment. But also capital markets are, um, you know, acting a certain way in that, like, you know, it's not a coincidence that these platforms, these rentiers have both emerged, you know, in 2009 after the Great Recession, right? You know, after the introduction of a monetary environment in which interest rates would be low, that bond yields would be low, that, you know, places for capital to park its money and get an adequate return would be scarce, right? At the same time that laborers are going to be, workers, people, you know, are going to be unable to find a job that will give them the security that they might have known 10 years ago, but that they definitely are never going to experience that their parents had or their grandparents had, you know, generations ago. And that in a pursuit, in the everlasting pursuit for like a real return on their investment, on a, on a satisfactory return on their capital that, you know, these companies, these investors, these, in, these institutions are looking for individuals, arrangements, collectives that can park their money in a place that is going to get a large return, right? And these rentiers, a lot of them, they're never going to be profitable. They're never going to be like really economically viable, but from the time in which they emerge as a startup to the time in which they go public, there's going to be a consistent amount of growth that if you exit at the time of going public, you'll yield a stupendous return, right? Even if you have a scenario as poor as Uber's, right? Where Uber was, I remember just feeling like I was high or something when people were talking about uh, Uber being worth $120 billion, like right before going public. And then it went public at 69 billion and dropped, or it went public at what, like 84 billion and then dropped down to like six to the sixties um, immediately. And you know, that seems like a pretty big haircut, but that's a huge payday for all the investors who got in relatively early when it was valued at 5 million, a hundred million, 10 billion, you know, 30 billion they still walked away with a lot of money. And I think that that's like, that ends up being a factor of growth in place of growth. You know, there's this, um, there was this study that came out earlier this year, which argued that the prime drivers of growth in this period, when they are looking at, um, you know, macroeconomic trends was that rentiers had supplanted like actual productive, um, productive activity, right? And so that they were then, these rentiers, driving the growth of the stock market. And that, you know, you'd see uh, a massive amount of equity or wealth being generated, generated from uh, rents that shareholders had being re 
allocated to an economy that was slowing down, right? Um, I think it was something like economic the economic growth they had it was like twenty four percent, followed by interest or economic growth accounted for about like twenty four percent, right? Of of the actual increase in the equity, whereas interest rates were eleven percent, and that. Um, if you looked at the lower risk premium, it'd be like another 11%. But if you looked at the previous period before, right, you know, from like the 50s to the 80s, um, maybe less than half of the wealth um, was created from those activities and economic growth accounted for like 90, 92% of it. And so you see like with the massive financialization of the economy, with the massive growth of speculative activities, with a generally poor recovery effort from the Great Recession, like these, the capital gets ends up getting parked in these enterprises where they're like, we're going to move the laborers in a way so that they can help us get returns, and also so they can undermine their welfare state, or they can undermine their social policy, their infrastructure, whatever they need to do so that we can accumulate capital and exit. Yeah, that, that's uh, yeah the, this real kind of centering of the rentier as that's the key actor of the economy now, which I mean, really just, it, it really tells you everything you need to know about this, like really sclerotic global economy that, um, the, the main actor, uh, the, the main holder of capital is what, you know, has long been described by, um, you know, even ranging back to, you know, Adam Smith, David Ricardo, you know, the original political economist up to, Marx, Keynes, right? Like um, the the rentier has always been described as parasitic. Um, it, it's always been described as this this kind of unproductive actor in the sense that um, it takes a cut from um, capital's profit, profits and labor's wages um, uh, because of its ownership, right? It, ownership and control of, of assets or access to something becomes the the core function, and we can see this this kind of like new um, mass enclosure happening as with the rise of these kind of like micro enclosures, right? Like I call it the internet of landlords because it's like, that's how we need to think about the internet of things, right? It's it's like, you know, when, when our coffee makers and toothbrushes um, become, you know, smart, you know, they, they become hooked up with sensors and, and network connections and, and all of that. Um, the, the, the reason behind that is because it allows for a micro enclosure, right? Like now the manufacturer of your smart coffee maker um, can control, remotely control um, access to the software that's necessary for that that coffee maker to work or your toothbrush, um, you know, or, or, or anything that becomes smart, right? It's this kind of like, we can see this history of enclosure um, repeating itself, but instead of these feudal lords or, or, or landed gentry kind of building fences around landed property and demanding rent for access to it, um, the, these new rentiers, um, they're, they're instead they're installing software um, so that they can capture value and control access to um, services and capitalist defenders like to say that communists will come and take your tooth brush and give it to everybody uh probably because what they what they want to do is rent your toothbrush back to you for a fee mm-hmm. right like that they, they, <laughs> because they literally do want mm-hmm. to do that right and it's like and and uh, uh it's um 
it's I don't know. It's sick. I don't know what the, what else to 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 call it. Yeah. <laughs> like, there's no theory there. It's just fucking gross. It, it's. I think yeah. that it's a. Pathology. I think that's my favorite part of the speculative story that you put as an addition. I think why it also really helps the entire essay is that. Um, a lot of the depictions that we might have of this sort of future that capitalists want are like immediately to the, are immediately framed in a way that obviously sounds horrible. Whereas yours is like one that makes sense when you're in it. And then when you step back, you realize how insidious it is. Similarly to ours, you know, like when you're in the mesh, when you're in and trapped inside of the system, doing what you can within it it makes sense why this or that happens but when you step back and you ask yourself whether or not that objectively is a good way to organize human activity or a good way to you know have individuals relate to a city or relate to each other it's not it, and it and it's horrible and it falls apart uh removed from that logic or the justifications or the whimpers of capitalists and rentiers right yeah, that that is also one of the one of my favorite things of your speculative story, David, is is the way that you actually really take seriously the 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 kind of prime conceit of all this that it will usher in a new age of convenience, um, and and thing you know and 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 just like a more kind of um, fluid and and even exciting life where it is the the idea that like you can move from a you know a fully furnished fully serviced um, apartment in New York to one in Paris or one in Dubai right so it's like uh, all of that I mean you know for, for I think for a lot of people that's kind of the dream because that's what um, that's that's how we think about the these kind of like uh, you know uh, citizenless, um, you know, these global cosmopolitans, which, uh, you know, I'm thinking of, um, uh, a, 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 you know, a book by, um, Atasa Araxia has this really interesting essay looking at these kinds of like, you know, the, these transnational wealthy people who, you know, have, passports all over the world you know borders don't mean anything to them they have homes and you know four global cities and 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 then also like you know uh, vacation homes and and you know multiple exotic locations and they're constantly moving between them right now that's that seems like the you know that that's the privilege of the ultra elite and that's the the promise of that kind of privilege and convenience that these um this kind of subscription economy and these kind of companies are offering to us and and you're right like when you're in it um or even as an aspiration that sounds exciting it sounds interesting it sounds cool right like i'm in the middle of moving apartments um in the midst of like you know the most severe stage four lockdown in melbourne which is a fucking nightmare to have to do um but it's because the lease at my one place is ending and so i have to get it you know so i'm having to move to another place um and it's like you know part of me is like yeah hell yeah that would be really cool if if moving just involved literally like packing my backpack with my most um prized possessions and then just literally like taking a, a, a you know an uber or, or something to my new place and now that's my new life uh, but but yeah it really requires you to kind of step back and be like all right what what's what's the whole like political economy of that what kind of society what kind of world um, is required 
for for that kind of model of of life as a service um, to to Th- operate. That sort of convenience theoretically could exist without the rentier class, right? Like th- this also sounds very much like the um, the the life of a of someone on a Naris, right? In a, in the dispossessed. Right in Ooh, Ursula Gwynn's uh-huh. book, right? Like they, yes. they're just sort of like these dormitories that you can you can move back and forth pretty much wherever you want. Maybe you get married, so you get a slightly larger one. You're taking care of a kid. You decide to take care of that kid instead of like give it to some sort of like communally run system, and so you know you get a slightly larger place because of that. And it's all based on need, but it's not pretty, right? You, you, um, th- there's a lot of scarcity. But what does exist is fairly distributed, right? And that kind of stuff can happen theoretically, probably. Um, uh, but you know, that's not—that's um, obviously what can't, that can't happen under capitalism because because the, the rentier has to exist, and there has to be some sort of extractive um, value there, right? There has to be something that you can that you can take and make make a make a buck on, and then that uh, is al- almost always made in the little fluffy stuff right and all the things that like uh you know the the bedouin uh uh rug framed on the table instead of uh, a brass uh subway token thing like like what i had in my, in my article right and um and i guess like you know part <laughs> of where that comes from is is um I'm just starting to get really deep into tourism studies, which is is a fascinating subgenre uh, uh, all on its own uh, mm. of academia. Where um, there's this uh, in 1999, I believe there's um, uh, Ning Wang comes out with this this article, sort of creating a typology of authenticity, uh, and and there's only three of them, right? There's three categories. The first one is um, objective, right? Which is uh, like what the art historian does, right? You know, you, you make sure that this is an authentic Rembrandt or whatever. Um, so there's that sort of authenticity. Then there's the constructed authenticity, which is like very much what um, you were describing Ed in Kenya, right? Where they, they, they make things expecting a particular kind of audience. And then crucially, you manage expectations so that the thing that you made registers as authentic, Right, and that's all over the place. Right, you can think of dozens of examples of of how we are our expectations are managed through advertising and and social conditioning, and then we experience that thing, and we go, yes, this is authentic. This is the real thing. And then, but then the third one, she calls um, uh, variously uh, postmodern or existential authenticity, and in this one, uh, which is I, I, where a lot of what we what we've been talking about. In this episode comes from is um it's it's not the object right that's being toured or looked at it's not the subject the tourist or the person experiencing the thing it is the relationship between them and p- particularly the state of exception that is produced when you look at a thing that is perceived as authentic right so you you say ah this is authenticity when you see when you have the like the new right when the new happens you go ah yes this is authentic because 
I can uh, use this as part of my own self-identity story because I am a worldly traveler or I am someone that is a, an excellent curator of taste. And because I have found this thing, I've associated with me, I'll even take a picture of it and put it on my Instagram story, right? This is all, this is all enrolled into my identity and it is authentic because it is new and, and it doesn't really seem to be interest. This thing doesn't seem to be interested in me or, or contrived in a way for my tastes. And so therefore it's, it's, it, it has some epistemic grounding, right? It has something that, that makes it real when all of the world around me is contrived and made, uh, for consumption. And, and, and if you can convince someone that they've experienced that, it is highly, highly valuable. Right. I'm, I'm thinking, you know, the, the, the future that this pretends and that we're already kind of living in is that, you know, what, like Mark, Mark Twain has that famous saying where he's like, you know, Americans um, are all like temporarily embarrassed millionaires, right? Right. I've been um, I've been I've been saying for a while that at least in, in academia, you know, um, mine and, and David's profession that most academics act like temporarily embarrassed middle managers, <laughs> like, like the, the, <laughs> the the aspirations have been lowered um, to, you know, you're not going to be part of the, the bourgeois, the 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 owner class, um, you know, the wealthy, you will instead, um, if you are lucky, uh, be a servant to them, you will instead enforce their interest um, and enforce the imperatives of capital. Um, but I, I think that we're, we're also seeing something very similar where it's like, instead of being temporarily embarrassed millionaires, we're all temporarily embarrassed influencers uh -huh. um, because access to, <laughs> access to economic capital is shut off. That's not even like a real aspiration to have anymore. Instead, it's, it's access to uh, uh, social capital or cultural capital, that becomes the aspiration. And we can see that in these, um, you know, right before we started recording, there's like this, you know, tweet going around and Ed was talking about it of, the, of this like, uh, um, this like TikTok influencer mansion, you know, and 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 Taylor Lorenz um, has has written a lot about these these kinds of you know influencer mansions and stuff. And really, the, all of that is about like gathering together um, influencers so that they can kind of like share and and increase each other's social capital or cultural capital um, through these kinds of influencer ecosystems, which are which you know that will be a subject of a future episode right. of TMK because it's just an absolutely insane um, kind of model but what is uh, what's erased from you know this this kind of, of, of way of living which you know could be used as an advertisement you know like the the speculative story in your article could be used as an advertisement from mm -hmm. um, Ali Uber or whatever to be like this is your life or you know but what, what's erased is all of the um, all of the human labor necessary all of the servants right. necessary to make that happen, right? Like if you are lucky, you will be one of these TikTok influencers, 
But if you are not lucky, which will be like 99% of people, you will instead be the person, you know, serving them um, their, 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 you know, their meals, uh, doing their laundry, you know, sanitizing their mansion, right. um, you know, whatever. Like, that's what you will be. And so it creates this, um, it, it, you know, it's it's better instead to look at like airlines. That's the that's the class model, right? It's like, yeah, yes, yeah. you know, you've you got to the, be the, democracy. the golden silver elite elite class exactly exactly in third tier or something yeah you will aspire to be a gold class member of ali uber Mm -hmm. um, which gives you access to these like you know these furnished apartments and stuff but but if you are instead a like you know economy coach member you will get access to these dormitories yeah this also makes me think about you know you've talked about and too smart in the book about um how we should think about this as like an act of terraforming when these companies are doing it because they're pouring in their resources to restructure the existing ecosystem so that it's more hospitable to their existence and proliferation and i was thinking about how before you know the show we were talking about the red mars series and how you know the red mars series is great i love it but it does also kind of like the on the one hand it doesn't exactly show all of the laborious actions that would have been done to be terraforming but on the other uh in terms of like you know maybe labor that might have to be used but on the other hand it still kind of does that in the abstract politically you get the sense of like what human stakes are being used thrown around and sacrificed so that like a green mars or a red mars or a blue mars can be achieved right and I think about how, you know, with these companies, that companies are often thought about as personified um, good actors who just happen to have a lot of money and not instead about like as vectors for capital accumulation that are interested in terraforming the way things are. That like the real ask and the real desire of a corporation is to make the world more hospitable to it, not to make the world better off. Because if the world were better off, it would have it likely have less need for the company and for its enterprises in the first place, right? If we had a better public transit system, we wouldn't really need an Uber. If we had a better rent system, we wouldn't need, or I mean, not a, not even a rent system. We just had a better housing system. If we had social housing or public housing, we wouldn't need Airbnb, right? But we have these companies because their promise is that what the, you know they'll plug the gap, but they expand the gap and fill themselves in it more and more comfortably so that they're able to extract um, at each point of operation and as an intermediary enough for their own investors and shareholders. And I think that um, you know when thinking about this essay, when thinking about your landlord, your internet of landlords, the the direction it feels that like the platform economy post great recession is going into is one where like the corporations have successfully gotten us to forget what their actual nature is and to just think of them as like damn like for some reason everything sucks and everything is broken can we help you fix it you know can we can we come in can we like can we help fix the pipes can we help fix the roads can we fix the transit system as if the people who aren't funding them aren't the ones who fucked it up and nearly blew it up uh 10 years ago 11 years ago at this point yeah i mean we we even see that with um transportation 
uh, municipal tr- uh, transit authorities where you know like most of those were established um uh through a um an act uh, from the Kennedy administration that um you know recognized that all of these private companies were going under and so they would need to be um uh bought by the state uh as was usually the case at the time when something necessary that was in private hands um was failing right the state would take it over um but they uh cities were only allowed to to buy them uh on credit they weren't given grants. They had to buy them with loans and uh, quite, uh, from the federal government. And quite often, these were um, governments that were having their that were already having financial difficulties. So, you know, like at, at no point was public um, uh, uh, transportation infrastructure, right? Um, at least mass transit infrastructure. Of course, highways mass- massively subsidized, but um, but transit you know was never allowed to have a robust well-functioning financial backing uh in this country right and 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 that and that makes sense that you know like now something like uber comes along and is like wow look at this immiserated public transit system it never works government can't do anything right. and so they're like well here well here's the private sector to come in and, and save that and like get finally give you convenience right because, because so much of all of this immiseration is both alienating and and confounding and and just makes you you know like everything is already so hard so like why can't like this one thing just be easier and 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 that's how they get you right you know like that's how it it, um you know and it goes almost beyond ideology to the point where like you know we've all on this on this podcast right like done you know like use these services right because it's not really about individual consumer habits you know it's about like you know getting through your fucking life you know it's, (laughs) it's really hard to to get all this stuff done when everything around you is broken, you know, and you know that that um the temporarily embarrassed millionaires, um, quote is actually from, it's a um, a, a mangling of a John Steinbeck, uh, quote, mm. um, where he um, I, I didn't know he he wrote in Esquire. Can you imagine reading John Steinbeck in Esquire? <laughs> no, uh, yeah, in in the 60s. like Marx like Marx in the New York Times. Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, so Steinbeck um, in June 1960 wrote in, in, in Esquire this thing about um, like middle class communists. And um, he, he said, uh, I guess the trouble was that we didn't have any self admitted proletarians. Everyone was a temporarily embarrassed capitalist. Um, because he, he would talk to these communists who would say stuff like, um, uh, here is a quote. Uh, After the revolution, even we will have more, won't we, dear? Like they're just like thinking about this like <laughs> a- aspirational American, right. uh, you know, like American dream. But instead of through uh, the the lie of of hard work, it's through the possibility of of a of a revolution, right? But it's st- but it's still for the same ends. And I and I think that's really powerful. Is that uh, all of these companies that are willing to offer you. Um, convenience is really just like trying to like just help you get through your goddamn day, and mm-hmm. you know, and 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 it's um, and, and it's just very easy to to take it because you know, like oh gosh, what's this one Uber ride gonna do for you know global financial capitalism, right? And it's like, yeah, it's not much, but you know, it, that that's how that's at in the aggregate how they're winning, right? It becomes this this like 
new version of the, you know, well, there's no ethical consumption under capitalism. So, you know, who gives a fuck, right? Like, uh, I'll, yeah, I'll take yeah, my yeah. Uber ride and I'll do my Airbnb. Um, that That's really interesting, though, that Steinbeck quote, because there's there's some 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 uh, um, unsettling similarities with, I, I think, a lot of uh, the discourse around like fully automated luxury communism, um, which has the same idea, right? That it's like, well, you know, after the revolution comes, like, you know, all, all, you know, all of these things, all of these services that were created, uh, for, for, you know, capital to extract profits and to ex exercise control over everything. Well, we'll, you know, we'll just, we'll just seize that. And now it will be used for, um, for communism instead. But, you know, we just have to, after the revolution, I will have more. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. It will be more equitably, uh, distributed. Yeah. It's the, um, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a really uh, comforting lie that we that it we is, tell ourselves. It is a, yeah. it is a comforting lie. It is a comforting lie, and it's one that and it's one that um, you know we we have been telling ourselves for a long time. I, I think as well, and um, a passage that like always uh, sits in the back of my mind is from um, Langdon Winner's magisterial uh, book, Autonomous Technology, you know, his first book, I think 1978. And there at the at the end of a very long discussion of the kind of technopolitics um, uh, in, in Lenin and the so and the, the revolution and state and revolution, Lenin's book, right? He he talks um, about how like even Lenin was really in and kind of enamored with the idea of Taylorism and the idea that all we had to do was take this this kind of capitalist way of organizing production and then just apply that to communism and you know it's just a simple kind of copy paste um and i think and and langdon winner's ultimate argument there is that it's like you know well can we take a, te a technological system that has had um these kind of values and interests, these kinds of purposes designed into it at every aspect, um, you know, is a core part of its function and its existence. Can we somehow disentangle all of that from the system and then just use that same system for different ends? And his argument is no, we can't, right? Like the, it, requi it requires us to think beyond um, what capital has already created um, to think about what you know what 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 comes next right it's it's not enough to um, think about how do we how, how do we uh, rehabilitate the rentier right um, how do we right. how do we rehabilitate ideas around you know the, these kind of platforms um, this kind of model of owning and controlling access to things um, this kind of data extraction all of these things that are core for parts of the operations of, of capital right now um, we it, it's a much more unfortunately a much more difficult task ahead of us to answer that question of what is to be done what comes next yeah and i, I if i'm remembering the, the 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 correct part of lenin uh about taylorism which i i think it 
they they call they they would just generally call scientific management Mm -hmm. they um you know he was saying like the capitalist won't even do it as well as the communist because the capitalist will only implement tailorism at the level of the firm they won't rationalize relationships between firms because they have to compete with one another and 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 what uh state communism can do is, is implement tailorism even more right that it, it'll it tailorize all the things <laughs> uh and, and put it in 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 every aspect of of production not just within firms but between them and and um and you know and yeah i, th- I think a lot of um that uh that critique that 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 winner makes like bear, bears out in, in a in a lot of respects yeah so i want to um I want to talk about more so with our with the last part of the of the episode. I, I do want to get into that idea of you know the um, you know the rentier as a class has as we talked about um, mentioned earlier. Uh, you know it's long been an object of criticism and it's long been an object of derision and 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 hatred by everyone who is not uh, a rentier. Um, you know the you know, Keynes famously thought that uh, you know the the rentier would become this like 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 the appendix. It would become this kind of vestige um, organ, this useless thing that would just kind of wither and die. That's kind of what he meant by the euthanasia of the rentier. It, it wasn't really this like. Um, active program of euthanizing the rentier. It was more than. <laughs> it wasn't like a guillotine kind. Yeah, of, it, it, it uh, wasn't. Um, it wasn't what you know uh, the the cultural revolution in China under the the land reform programs you know, really kind of put into action. Keynes's um, aphorism there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know, Ke- Keynes thought that the rentier that as the economy progressed. Um, the rentier would just kind of wither. And that's obviously not been the case. I mean, the whole um, kind of core argument of this episode and of, of, of work that we've been doing is that um, quite the opposite. In fact, the rentier has become um, much more muscular, um, much more expansive, um, and it has not withered. It has instead become the kind of core actor of the economy, the core engine that's driving it forward in uh, over the cliff, of course, but, but still driving it forward. Um, so I mean, what would what would a program of um, uh, of of uh, platform reform um, look like? Mm. Uh, you know, how- I think. Yeah, go ahead. Ed. You know, I think one of the really under or maybe neglected in terms of like mainstream attention is the role in which the larger monetary environment has played in allowing rentiers to flourish you know i mean the problem is so bad you had like financial times you know part-time uh business press uh flagship part-time marxist uh rag um you know talking about why rentier capitalism is uh probably the biggest i mean it for their bank accounts the biggest threat to liberal democracy right and that uh you, you i think that you also have people talking about how you have a lot of these consumer-facing, quote-unquote, tech companies, unicorns that are purporting to be tech companies so that they can justify uh, 
avoidance of regulations or justify inflated valuations um, proliferating, right? And they're proliferating because of debt financing. And the debt financing is happening because of the near zero, in some cases, negative interest rates that allow a large amount, multi-billion dollar uh, sums to be loaned out at zero cost to or near zero cost to individuals, right? Or to or companies. I think that we're like, you know, part of the problem is as long as we're in this like horrible, horrible recovery from 2009, uh, this problem is not going to be addressed, right? Um, and that capital is consistently going to be looking to undermine controls, undermine borders, undermine any sort of regulatory constraint on it to seek a return. And the way to, the best way to seek a return is to look at already established welfare states and public infrastructures for goods and services and think about ways to cannibalize them so that individuals migrate from using a public good or service, not as a consumer, but as a citizen, to then going onto your platform and consuming what they once had or took for granted, right? Um, and, you know, I don't know, I, I, I think like, you know, actors like SoftBank, like Masayoshi Sun, actors, central banks in, in general are need to be looked at more closely as part of the reason why, even if there's not a tech bubble, um, tech not, it's not a coincidence that these technology companies have had the most stupendous growth in the post-failed recovery um, decade. Yeah, David, I'll throw, I'll throw it over to you. Um, and, and one of the things I really like about your, um, about your work is the way that you are thinking about how, um, space and the kind of, you know, particularly cities are being reshaped by these platforms, this kind of platform urbanism. Um, and, and, you know, is that where we look at for the, the kind of, you know, the the mass reform program um for platforms is you know or you know in other words are cities the kind of battleground on which this needs to be fought or or you know what 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 do you think yeah i i think i i kind of want to turn that inside out because you know like i i think it's you know um henri lefebvre says that you know like the city is marxist geographer says he like the city is um uh, like a modernizing force that modernity is uh, shot through with urbanization, right? And and when you think about like what urbanization is at its root, right? It is the um, the what we were talking about, of like like enclosing um, commons and bringing people off the land and into wage work, right? And it is rationalizing relationships so that instead of um, having this one person that you know that is you know um uh uh you know they're 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 an acquaintance you uh live down the street from them you buy weed from them and they are also your car mechanic right you know like this complex relationship that isn't quite friendship and it isn't quite uh um uh in a uh completely economic relationship either right um uh, you move you move from that into these like very utilitarian relationships that are very thin. They're like I you know like I buy legal legal weed from this place and I get my car serviced at the uh, the dealership because I'm under warranty and I work uh, over here and I actually don't know and I live over here because I, and I don't actually even know my neighbors because they move around so much right 
and so you you atomize everything as much as possible and then you um uh, commodify every single relationship between those atomized individuals and that is essentially Urb, uh, like the urbanization process, right? But and of course, there's so many uh, interesting things that can that can come out of that. You know, this is it's not the, it's not only dour, right? Because then you also have all these really uh, uh, emancipatory and important connections that get made in these diverse and dense places. Um, and I think the internet is exactly the same thing. You know, it it uh it, it has an atomizing force, but it is also where you can uh, meet. meet Meet other people and become like a, a really um, uh, sort of a different kind of metropolitan in, in individual. But you know the, the uh, but you know the, also these enclosing rentier forces are also there in both the city and uh, and online as platforms, right? So they they sort of mirror each other in terms of problems. So like if the city is the battleground in so much as like we turn you know like the, the more rural parts of the world into cities through platforms. Right. Uh, and so the, the, I, I think we'll, we'll see less differences between like lived experience in different densities because the platform and digital networks sort of bring these urbanizing aspects to, to all parts of the globe. Um, and, and, you know, and then like, uh, which then brings like these like really sort of, confusing or disturbing like what the hell do you do about that right like what is the actual action that you do like how do you storm the bastille against the <laughs> internet right and, and um you know the, the uh, um a, a, you know before co in the before time before covid um you know uh, um up here in upstate new york where i live in troy we have this this awesome forum run by a um uh uh john flanders this like um a retired uh union man from the the uh the um railroad industry and he would organize what was called the james Connolly forum which uh named after james Connolly, the the uh irish um uh, uh revolutionary that spent quite a bit of time in troy lived in troy and um and in, in the, the the forum was just you know like you bring speakers in to talk about um all sorts of important topics and we we had jody we were uh, we had jody dean on uh, mm -hmm. over, over a couple of times. And I, and we, uh, I, I was, um, grateful to like, have to, to be able to like drive her, uh, to like the after, uh, lecture bar. And, um, and after a couple of drinks, we, you know, we started talking about like, how do you storm a data center? <laughs> right. It's like, like, what, like what, Very <laughs> what yeah. <is> the material, <laughs> Yeah, right. Yes. Very careful. Yeah, right. But but like the, the, the material conditions are such that, you know, like even if you control that one data center, like one, do you have the rarefied expertise to be able to, to seize the data center and then use it for the people? Uh, or are things so, un, you know, like distributed that that one data center can just be shut off and like everything shows up somewhere else? Right. So like there's um, the immateriality this is sort of a paradox here is like the immateriality of these platforms that they, that like the, the, the valuable, um, you know, like the, the data, the valuable aspect of this, the data, what, what, um, in, in your Antipode article, Jathan, right. You talk about like, you could take apart the, uh, uh, data as the new oil metaphor. Right. And, 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 you know, so like data is like this, this thing that creates value and that like all the economy is based on can be moved instantaneously. So like our actions on like how to seize these sorts of very valuable things like becomes like very, very difficult. 
um, to the mm-hmm. point that like you know like like these this capital really is really is human capital. We have to sort of like take that that awful um, capitalist language <laughs> and think of you know like the, the, like all the capital is stored in like these people's brains with all these different. Um, uh, 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 a proprietary knowledge that makes these um, data centers run, right? Like, so it's it's, it's a really complicated um, uh, topic that not only needs more theorization, but we need to like figure out what the the new um, uh, direct action looks like for this sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, you know, thinking about things in terms of infrastructure and choke points as well is really interesting because if we think about like you know the logistics kind of industry, it, it does have these choke points where, you know, if you can organize a strike at the docks, then you can really shut down like the circulation, like the global circulation of, of commodities, right? You can, you can do a lot um, in, in this like really kind of material action in a particular place um, because that, you know, that be, that's such a, um, you know, it, it's such a, an important part of how capitalism operates. If we think about data as capital, then yeah, I mean, the choke point is no long, like you can't just treat a data center like a choke point in the way that you can a dock um, because you can't like physically stand in the way um, of, of that data just being transmitted instantaneously to another data center in Singapore um, or, you know, somewhere else. And, and, so, but instead, you know, thinking about data as capital and, you know, my work, I, and, and I agree, I mean, there needs to be a lot more kind of theorization and just thinking ab- about this. But, you know, I was thinking about how do we, how do we instead treat it as something like financial capital, which is also very, you know, circulates, uh, you know, very readily. Um, you know, you have capital flight, you have capital strikes, right? That was basically Uber's whole, um, you know, gambit in California is that it was going to do a capital strike um, in California. And I, I, yeah, I mean, so thinking about in terms of like capital controls, right? How do we um, institute over over data, um, some kind of similar policy of capital control, where it's no longer just relying on um, the kind of physical presence or action of of a strike of a workforce, um, but is a, but is also attacking um, at the heart of the kind of uh, legal uh, system of how 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 financial capital data capital platforms like all all rely on um you know a you know a, a legal system that essentially allows them to operate in that way and we saw that kind of fight between the law and and uber um in california and we saw we saw the the, the coward appeals court capitulate between uh, before um you know before uber but I do think that 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 wasn't a failure. That was like a test balloon, right? That's how we need to understand that. Um, and 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 what and and it could have worked uh, if there was more courage and if there was the the kind of um, uh, ability um, or I don't I don't know the yeah just the courage to push forward with it to actually institute that that ruling. Um, and and exert yeah. some kind of control over capital. You know, I was talking when I went on your show earlier. 
David, we talked a bit about this, but like, you know, the, the steps that need to be done to um, really make data um, no longer private um, commodity, but instead something that the public could use and then to build the infrastructure for that require like the sort of courage that if you're not going to be able to stand up to a, a private company clearly blackmailing you and threatening a capital strike in this system, then you're not going to be able to do it because like we need to be able to be threatening Uber and Lyft and other companies to deny their access if they do not agree to terms where the data is ours, right? We need to be able to like step up and seriously risk barring such a service from operation unless we don't get what we want. But the state of affairs as they are right now is that they are the ones with that power and they're able to threaten exits or strikes if they don't get what they want. And until that state of affairs is reversed, I don't think anything will change. Yeah, and I, and I think crucially in that is understanding what these companies' uh, real purpose is, which I, I, I think we we talked about at the very beginning of this episode, right? Which is not um, uh, like like Uber's job is not to get you from point A to point B. It's to like be the rentier that not only. Uh, gets all sorts of rents off of the action of going from point A to point B. It's also to be the broker of the information about how you got mm. there. Right. And, um, and, 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 and if we recognize that that is the real, uh, purpose of that sort of company, right. Then our tactics change and our strategy changes because that's how these, then we know that, you know, like individual, uh, uh, boycotts of, of like rides doesn't really do anything or like switching to lift doesn't do anything. <laughs> right. It, it's, um, because we're not striking at the actual profit center of of those sorts of services right which is really the data yeah, it, like the and the the platforms are really setting themselves up as too big to fail i mean i've been seeing this language um around the uber ruling and after that you know these platforms are you know they're they're too big to fail you know the too too many people rely on them for for work too many people rely on them for services right and and that's that's terrifying, right? That's frightening. That's like yeah. that's like yeah. if your landlord were too big to fail, but worse, <laughs> you know. Mm. And um, mm -hmm. and uh, well, I mean, the, the the horrible thing is that we can actually see that happening in the more traditional real estate sector as well, with these like global corporate landlords, um, like Blackstone and stuff that own you know portfolios of thousands and thousands of rental properties and they're securitizing their rent from them and all of that. Uh, but and, and so it's this drive towards monopoly, which we began the episode talking about. But, you know, I, 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 I think at least um, in terms of like the collective conscience um, towards these things, we would go a long way by understanding these platforms as landlords, but worse. Um, one of the things that you said, David, um, as well earlier in the episode was that it's like, you know, at least with your landlord and you have a lease, um, you have some kind of renter's rights or at least at least the the the, the veneer <laughs> um, uh, uh, you know the smokescreen of renter's rights where there is like this contract and you do have some rights in that um, versus like this subscription economy um, in which there's a contract it's a terms of service agreement or a licensing agreement um, which you have 
you don't even understand it, right? Like you, you, you can't understand what what's involved, and there's no negotiation possible. There's no, um, not even the appeals court will uh, will save you, right? And and so it's a it's a forfeiture of even more rights, um, a forfeiture of even more control over um, not only the place you live, but like literally every single thing and service and part of your life um, to uh, a, a rentier platform, to a kind of internet of landlords. And, you know, that, that's how we have to understand this. So at the very least, um, and, and, and I think Uber has gone a long ways towards um, engendering this kind of um, de- derisive view of these platforms. Um, but at the very least, by understanding it in that way, um, it becomes obvious that this is a really severe problem and that these platforms, they are not here to um, to save you, right? They are not here to to solve your problems. Yeah, and, and and you know you you very accurately described like sort of the 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 uh, the, the really macro level um, way that they that they control us, but then there's also like the very intimate ways that they do that as well, right? Where like you don't necessarily um, uh, identify with your landlord or your super, right? He's just he's just like some sort of like angry Bulgarian man that shows up at weird hours to like fix your faucet, right? Like nothing about that person like makes you feel like you, like you are you, right? Whereas with a lot of these uh, companies, they want to not only uh, put a roof over your head for an excessive amount of money, they also want to uh, be like part of your identity, right? They want to be able to, or at least be part of your identity construction project. And uh, once they really get us at that level, it becomes very, very difficult to to, um, ima- to you know, your, your imagination, I think, really suffers in that respect. And, and I'm not saying that like, you know, other people like, oh, other people are just too dumb. They can't see outside of that bubble. Like, I know I would absolutely like have a really hard time, uh, you know, sort of disassociating myself from a world where. Um, you know, like a company knows very well my tastes and desires and like always has like, you know, uh, fresh baked bagels <laughs> ready for me. Like, you know, that, that's my shit. Like, of course I'm going <laughs> to love that and miss it if, if right. so, and, and, you know, defend it, defend it if, uh, if someone tries to take it from me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, 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 I think we can kind of wrap up this episode. You know, I'm just remembering um, this quote from Ronald Reagan, where he said the the nine most terrifying words in the English language are I'm from the platform and I'm here to help. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, Mr. Zuckerberg, tear down this platform. (laughs) Tear down this wall. Tear down this this garden wall. Uh, all right. Well, th- this has been um, an awesome uh, conversation. You can find David um, on Twitter. Uh, we'll throw all the links into the project description. Definitely read his essay in Eflux. Um, read his essays in Real Life Magazine for, for a lot more awesome analysis of all this stuff. Um, and listen to the Iron Weeds podcast. Is there anything else you want to uh, plug or say, David? 
Oh man, uh, no, that that was a, that was really uh, uh, gracious. Thank you. And then uh, I guess the the one thing is like you know in the um, in the distant horizon, um, I think I mentioned this briefly. I'm working on a book uh, all about how cities act like reality TV stars and Instagram influencers. So mm-hmm. um, that will be out uh, with a University of California Press in you know a year ah. or two. But uh, you know we're, we're working, uh, but you know definitely working on that, and it's going to have all of these uh, these themes are going to run through it and including a lot of Simpsons references. Excellent. Yes. Uh, you know, I've been watching The Simpsons more and more over time. I've missed out, so I'm excited for the references. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to have to do, uh, um, uh, air quotes here, research by <laughs> watching a lot of yes, Simpsons. Yes, that, that, that is the perfect, uh, you know, binge-watching Simpsons for for work. Um, perfect. So, well, we are definitely looking forward to that book, and we'll, we will have you on to talk about it when it comes out, and I'm sure before then as well. Um, so... Oh, thanks. Thank you very much again, David, for joining us. This has been TMK. um, And until next week, see ya.